you would please stand as I read for you our text this morning from Jude, Jude verses 17 through 23. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So in the reading of God's word, may we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. We are working our way through this letter of Jude. We've been stuck here in verses 17 through 23, and we've already noted that Jude, the author of this letter, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 17, is calling the church to awaken. He's calling the church to arise. He's calling the church believers. Uh, it is a call to arms. It is time to pick up the weapons. It is a battle that is taking place. It is already taking place, and it is a battle for the truth. And so often the church sadly, rather than recognizing the battle for the truth, spends its time identifying what are clearly errors and falsehoods that come to us from the world. That's not rocket science. If you do not have the Spirit of God, you will not walk in the Spirit of God. It is any wonder that the secular world does not like God, hates God, hates his ways, hates his truth. But that's not what Jude is coming to talk to us about. We know what the world tells us, that we should be acceptance, uh, accepting of same-sex marriage, that killing babies as a matter of convenience is, well, it should be just fine, and that mutilating children because they're confused about their gender, well, that's just par for the course. Well, those are easy to identify. Any biblically informed person knows that that's just pure evil, and it's not right. Why is it not right? Because it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it's not right. But believe it or not, there's an even more sinister battle that's taking place. And it's not between Christians and our government. And it's not between a church polity and a governmental policies. The battle is taking place not outside of the church, but inside, within her ranks. And people who identify with the church, according to to survey after survey, are becoming more and more biblically illiterate. They are unable to discern and to discover that within their ranks, there are those who are speaking perverse, twisted, unbiblical things, all dressed up with a Christian veneer. Such teachers and teachings, we've noted, have crept into the church unnoticed. They are here. They are now. In doing so, such teachings are leading many astray, diluting and polluting the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Beloved, the purity of the church is dependent upon her commitment to the purity of doctrine. If we will not fight for pure teaching, we will never be a pure church. Beloved, what you believe about God, what you believe about man, what you believe about sin and the Lord Jesus Christ has an impact on how you will conduct your life. Having already laid out the fact that apostates are among the flock and what will be the final fate for all those who teach a gospel other than that which has been received via Christ and his apostles, that they will experience a divine and eternal damnation, Jude has shifted his focus away from the apostates per se, and he's now focused on the church. What is his intent in verses 17 through 23? Here we find him instructing the church with regarding how she ought to live, how she is to conduct herself, how to stand in the days of apostasy. What should we be doing right now to ensure that we will not be like those who fall away from the faith? What is the expectations? What are the steps of a body of believers to take so that they do not succumb to teachings that lead to what? According to Jude, they would lead to licentiousness, that is, loose living, that would be living subpar to what God has commanded, and they eventually deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Well, Jude offers five commands. He gives five exhortations. He tells us five imperatives that he expects believers to do if they would desire to stand firm in the faith, the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And they are, as we've been looking at them, that we are to remember the words of the apostles. We are to go back to the apostles' teaching, or as Acts 2.42 says, the apostles' doctrine. We are to remember those words. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. We're to have mercy, compassion, pity on those who are doubting. There are those who are struggling with their faith. And we don't just assume that they're unsaved per se, but we go after them with the truth of God's word so that they may be strengthened in the faith. We'll save others out of the realm of false teaching. And we are even to have mercy on those who are outright polluted by the garments of sin. But we fear that we not fall into the same snare as them. Well, we've already looked at that first expectation, a call to devote or commit, resolve ourselves to the apostles' teaching, as was the early church in Acts 2.42. The word of God is our first weapon against the errors of deceit and lies. If you want to know how to keep yourself firm in the days of apostasy, you turn to the word of God as taught through the apostles. Well, the second one is is identified there in verse 21 as keep ourselves in the love of God. Keep ourselves in the love of God. This is one that Jude, however, prefaces with two two explanations. Uh, Two explanations as to how the exhortation is to be accomplished. How are we to keep ourselves in the love of God? Now, I want to remind you that last week, We have not yet considered what it means to be kept in the love of God. And today I'm not going to tell you specifically what it means to be kept in the love of God. 
Jude prefaces this with these two participles. Actually, if you look at the command carefully, look at verses 20 through 21. And you look at verse 21, it says, keep yourselves in love of God. But that command is sandwiched between what we call three adverbial participles. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Three adverbial participles. There's two before the command, and there's one after the command. The first two are building yourselves up on the most holy faith. The second is praying in the Holy Spirit. Then we have the command, keep yourselves keep our, yourselves in the love of God. And then it ends with this adverbial participle, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Well, what on earth is an adverbial participle and why do I care? An adverbial participle is a phrase that modifies or explains the main verb of the sentence. And our main verb is keep yourselves in the love of God. There's the command. But Jude, before giving the command, wants to explain to his readers, us, how he expects them to fulfill this command. So it's kind of it's like, I'm about to tell you to do something, but in order to do it, you need to do A and B, and then I'll tell you what you're going to do. And so that's how he's setting this up. And then after giving the command, Jude offers one more means by which believers can keep themselves in the love of God. We might rightly translate the passage this way, but you, beloved ones, by constantly building yourselves up on your most holy faith, by praying for your own benefit in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God by waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So you can kind of see how the main idea is keep yourselves in the love of God, but he's, he's couching this, he's surrounding it with these other ideas that we need to flesh out. So how do believers stand in days of apostasy when so many people are falling away, when there are, when there are uh, upwards of 50% of people who go to evangelical churches saying that Jesus is not the only way, the only truth, and the only life? That's an apostate teaching, by the way. How do we stand in those days? Well, we must keep ourselves in the love of God. And we do so by constantly building one another up on our most holy faith, by praying for our own benefit in the Holy Spirit, and waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we started last week with that first one, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, the first how of keeping a command that he has not yet given. That is where we considered noting all the expectations, all the ramifications of what it means to be building. We said it's to be adding to the foundation of faith more and more truth. You've been given the foundation of Christ, and now you're building more and more. You're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it reminds us of our need, beloved, of being engaged with one another. You cannot build up someone that you are not with. How many of you have ever been able to build a house virtually? I have a lot over here, and I want to build a 2,000-square-foot house, and I'm just going to use my computer and watch it be built online. It doesn't work that way. You have to have physical bodies out there doing something. The church is the same way. If you think you're going to be built up in the holy faith by neglecting the gathering of the saints together, you will not be, building up, be built up, and you are robbing the church of being built up by what you yourself could offer. So, enough with that. Let's move. That was last week. 
when we noted that we build one another up in the faith, that is the, the truth of God's word. But now let's look this morning at the second adverbial participle. The second way which Jude says, if you're going to keep yourselves in the love of God, here's what you need to do. You need to be building yourselves up in, in God's word. And now he says, you must be praying in the Holy Spirit. Well, that seems straightforward. We need to pray. But Jude does something interesting. The phrase praying in the Holy Spirit, it's found only in this place in all of Scripture, that particular wording, praying in the Holy Spirit. Believers who pray in the Spirit will be those who keep themselves in the love of God. But it begs the question, what is meant by Jude when he says praying in the Holy Spirit? Uh, we don't want to get lost in the weeds. I think sometimes people make more of it than, uh, than it needs to be. There's a lot of ways of saying the same thing. You know what a preacher does every Sunday? He says, here's God's word. Now let me tell you what it means five or ten different ways until you get it, right? That's kind of what's going on here. So he, he, he uh, says that we, we are to be praying in the spirit. He does not simply say pray. He could have said that, and that would have been enough. I want you to be praying to keep yourselves in love of God. But he, he does add the qualifier in the Holy Spirit. And as seemingly straightforward as this may sound, again, this is the only time this is found in this exact phraseology. And so we need to discern what does Jude mean when he instructs believers to be praying in the Holy Spirit. And I want to, I want to, to remind you that what it means is this, and there's more to it than this, but it means this, that all genuine prayer, if it's genuine, true prayer, all legitimate prayer is prayed for in the sphere or in the realm of the Holy Spirit. If you're praying to some other God, you're not in the Holy Spirit. You're not in the realm of the Holy Spirit. If you're praying just because some people, a lot of people pray, do you notice that? You can go to, to uh, Walmart and somebody will take the Lord's, uh, uh, yell out, Jesus Christ. And you're like, I wonder what they're praying about. They're not praying in the spirit. You, you know what I'm saying. All prayer, beloved, if it is true prayer, is to be motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means in the realm, in the power, in the dictates, in the, in the this, this fear of the Holy Spirit. There's no true prayer that is not spirit-generated, that is not spirit-led. If your prayer is not with the intention of being in the sphere, what the Holy Spirit says prayer is to be, you are not truly praying, and you will fall prey to the apostates. Let me remind you that Jude is issuing a call to arms to believers. He has already said your first weapon in this battle is the word of God. He's about to say your second weapon is Holy Spirit-motivated prayer. That's what he's getting to. We read in 2 Corinthians 10.4 a very sobering truth. Paul writes to the Corinthians saying, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Well, what is he saying? For our weapons, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, not humanly generated, 
It's not based on how logical you can be. It's not based upon the prowess of your your mind. It's not based upon how strong you are or how good-looking you may be. It says, Paul says, it is divinely powerful. The word means mighty before God for the destruction of fortresses, which in the next verse he says would be anything, any philosophy, any teaching, any thinking, any form of logic that would set itself up against the knowledge and power of God. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus is, is anticipating the cross. He's... he's uh, feeling the weight, the burden of what's about to happen to him. And he takes his three closest disciples. These are the three best friends he has on this earth. These are the guys who for three years have been with him through thick and thin. And he says, hey, just come with me and pray with me. You know the story, right? How well did they do with that? They fell asleep. Bunch of lazy jerks. We wouldn't have fallen asleep. But Jesus chastises them. He, he's pouring out his soul before the Lord with what's about to happen. Of course, the disciples are kind of clueless on that. And he comes back to find that rather than praying, they're sleeping. And he says in Matthew 26, 41 to them, keep watching and what? Praying that you may not enter into temptation The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We usually focus on that last half of the verse. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What does Jesus say? If you will watch out for the air, and if you will continually be praying, you will not succumb to the temptation of falling away. He's saying exactly what we're finding in Jude. Beloved, if we would stand firm in the faith, We must watch and pray. That's what Jesus said. We watch so as to sight the enemy. We watch so as to see the error that is coming our way. And then we pray in light of what we have seen. Beloved, it is by prayer that we engage in this battle with the enemy. We cannot ever hope to gain victory over apostasy by mere means of the same weapons that the enemy uses. What does the enemy use? Uses deceit uses lies, uses clever statements, tries to couch things and, and, and redefine things in such a way that you're not really certain what he says, and then we're too slow to say, what do you really mean by that? And so the enemy uses this human logic and such to try to, to dupe us, and we will never gain victory if we simply try to use human logic in order to, to combat that. To be sure, God has given certain people within the church the ability to discern the errors of others. We give thanks to God. We really do and must give thanks to God for men like Justin Peters or James White for their use of God's word and logic to fight the enemy. But not all of us are Justin Peters. Not all of us are James Whites. But we have something greater than, than those men in themselves. We have the Holy Spirit of God. If truth be told, if all these men ever used were their gifts of mental prowess and discernment, it would not be enough to stand against the lies that are being perpetrated. What they will tell you, each of those men, 
And what weapon is granted, they will tell you to every single believer. And what Jude is calling for us to use as a spiritual weapon is prayer. Pray in the Holy Spirit. For the battle we are in is a spiritual battle, and so it must be fought with spiritual weapons. If we are to recognize that biblical, if we fail to recognize that biblical Christianity is supernatural and spiritual, we will err. If you forget that what you're doing today is a supernatural event, there's nothing ordinary here. If you are a child of God, saved by the blood of Christ, you've experienced a supernatural transformation. You are supernaturally being transported before the throne of grace in this hour to worship him and to know him and to make him known all the more. The truths we know in the content that we have is contained in a supernatural book, is it not? The Bible is no ordinary book. It is not a math book. It's not a history book. It's not uh, a physics book. It is an extraordinarily constructed book by the hand of God. It is one that the scripture says is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow and able, able to judge, are you ready, the thoughts and intention of the heart. What book can do that? The word of God. The truths of the supernatural book were supernaturally revealed to men who were supernaturally inspired to record them. By a supernatural being we know as the Holy Spirit. The truths conveyed, con conveyed concern themselves with a supernatural person whom we have come to know as the Son of God, who left his abode in the presence of God the Father and to become supernaturally incarnated in the flesh so as to become simultaneously, ready for this, let's this, let this blow your mind, simultaneously the Son of God and the Son of Man, of the order of God and of the order of man. That is the supernatural position of your Savior, Jesus Christ. This God-man lived a supernatural life. And he performed countless supernatural deeds. He was placed upon a Roman cross during which time supernatural events took place. The sun was darkened. The graves were opened. The earth, an earthquake shook the ground and the temple veil in the, in the temple itself was torn from top to bottom in two. A number of Roman soldiers were converted and confessed their faith in Jesus. And then he died. His body was placed in a tomb wherein it was supernaturally preserved from the ordinary process of corruption and decay as prophesied in Psalm 16. Supernaturally, this one rose from the dead. Supernaturally, he appeared to the multitudes. Supernaturally, he spoke with and taught his disciples until at last he supernaturally ascended into heaven. The church which Jesus himself promised, was supernaturally inaugurated by the descent of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. To become a Christian requires what? A supernatural regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are unable to live a life that pleases God. And because Christ alone has lived that life perfectly, 
the merit of his life are now supernaturally imputed to us by the Holy Spirit. Living in light of such a life is granted and developed in believers by supernatural means, not the least of which Jude now informs us is prayer. And like the Son of Man, believers become partakers of a supernatural transformation that will come either by rapture or by resurrection when we will be fitted to live in the presence of God for all eternity to delight and do his will. The entire process, beloved, is given to us by a super, is, is opposed by a supernatural being that we know as Satan. And he is joined by a countless horde of other supernatural beings known to us as fallen angels or demons, those who are committed to the destruction of the human race and the overthrow of Christ and his kingdom. And one of the key weapons that the devil uses in his battle is, again, deception. We need to remember that behind every false religion, behind every false philosophy, behind any and every thought that is contrary to the word of God, there is a supernatural power, the inspiration of Satan. Every error, every aberration of the Christian faith is a result of a supernatural outworking of Satan. Is it any wonder that Jude says, church, wake up and start fighting this battle with a supernatural weapon? You cannot stand in the days of apostasy. You will not have the discernment in yourself if you're depending and looking to yourself. Look to the word of God and then pray in the Holy Spirit. Yes, we can oppose lies with logic. We can oppose falsehoods with facts, but even with all such weapons, what is still all around us? Error. Falsehoods. No matter how often we expose the errors of higher criticism, of evolutionary thinking, of secular humanism, or whatever other isms you might want to include, those who follow such thinkings continue to propagate those lies as though they were what? Truth. Satan goes after the mind because ever since the fall of man, the human mind has become uh, the, the, the sepulcher of, of lies, of, of the evil one. But we must remember that our God goes not only after our minds when he saves us, he goes as well to our hearts. He illuminates the human heart with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's not enough just to know in your mind your heart needs to delight in who Jesus is and what he has done. Therefore, if we would stand in the days of apostasy, if we are going to keep ourselves in the love of God, whatever that means, we'll get there, we must utilize the weapon of God's own choosing for us. And today I'm telling you one of the weapons you must pick up is prayer. Why? You and I are no match for Satan. But Satan is no match for the Holy Spirit. Prayer is our looking to then and our depending upon a power outside ourselves. 
What, what did John say? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Prayer is our looking to and depending upon a power outside ourselves, a power that we're being reminded is necessary if we would rightly stand opposed to error, proclaiming the truth. But what is prayer? What is prayer? I'm sure some of you are coming up with your own definitions. There's a real easy definition, isn't there? What is prayer? Talking with God. It's having a conversation with God. But too often would we not have to confess that our prayers either are or are seen as one-way lines by which we make supplication and we tell God all of our needs and cares and wants and concerns. God, today's been bad. I need your grace. I need this. And, And all of those things may be true. And God says, bring it on. But if all you're doing is talking to God and you're not listening to him, you're not having a conversation and it's not spirit-motivated prayer. True prayer, while it will include petitions and supplications, will always include things like adoration and praise to God and confession of sin. I've often used the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, in my prayer life. Just as I pray, trying to keep all of that, just to to help me think, what does ACT stand for? A is for adoration, acknowledging who God is. I move into a time of confession. C, confession of my sin. This is followed by the T, a time of thanksgiving for the blessings of God in my life. And then I move to the S, which is then, after all of that is done, then I start my supplications. Then I start my petitions. But notice in Acts, the last thing you do is tell God what you want and what you need. Some people prefer cats. If you're a cat person, you can use cat and start with confession, then adoration. But uh, I'll leave that to you. Beloved, it is in supplication that we ask to know and do God's will. I love Proverbs 15.8 that tells us that God delights in the prayers of his people. Why would I pray? Well, God delights in it. It says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is God's what? His delight. God delights to hear from you. God delights to know that you've been thinking about him and that you desire to know him. God delights in that you would come to him and pour your hearts out before him. But it begs a question, why is it that God delights in our prayers? Why does he delight in our supplications, our asking of things? And I'll say because of this last statement up there on that screen, because praying to God is an expression that you are dependent upon God. God already knows you're dependent upon him. You don't need to inform God, hey, God, I just want to remind you today that I'm dependent on you. No, it is God, I know I'm dependent upon you. And if you don't help me in this, if you don't help me understand truth from error, if you do not help me today to stand for you, if you do not engage with me, I will crumble. Jesus made such a profound statement in John 15 when he said, a very simple statement, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. I like to to embellish that bit. Apart from me, you can do absolutely, positively, irrevocably, unalterably nothing. 
That's what I think the Greek means. Praying expresses then our devotion and our dependence on the Lord. You know, there's nothing quite like being needed, is there? Don't you love it when somebody needs you? When my wife tells me she needs me, it brings a joy to my heart, unless, it, unless it's not something I want to do. But, you know. but when we pray to God, we are saying, in essence, God, we need you. Beloved, if your prayer life is lacking, it is because you do not rightly feel your dependence upon him. It is because you have somehow thought you can live this life to the glory of God without the dependence upon God. We think ourselves at times too self-sufficient. I can do that in my sleep. I can do that without thinking. That is my habit already. Then break that habit and make sure that you're dependent upon God. We've come to believe that we can do so many things by ourselves, for ourselves. Not to be overly simplistic, but most anyone, I guess, over the age of like five can tie his or her shoelaces, right? Almost. But can I tell you something about tying shoelaces? You didn't know this. You're going to be so glad you came to church this morning to hear this. Most anybody that's learned how to tie their shoelaces can tie their shoelaces, right? That, that's no-brainer. Do you know that not everyone can tie their shoelaces to the glory of God? Does God want you to tie your shoelaces to his glory? Beloved, that takes a humble heart to say that I can't even tie my shoelaces to the glory of God without acknowledging my need of God in my life. That's what prayer is. Beloved, since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, humanity has always overestimated their own ability. And I promise you and I do it all the time. We overestimate our ability to live this life to the glory of God. So people think that they do not need to pray because, well, this routine, this project, this job, this relationship, it's just part of what I do. It's already built in me. I don't need God. Can you imagine saying that? You don't say it that way, right? I don't need God in this. I need God for more important things. Our biggest issue with prayer is our pride in admitting that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We don't like admitting that we need God's help in everything, not just the big things, but everything, even the small ones. Yes, anybody can cook, anybody can clean, anybody can practice medicine or crunch numbers or study, but only the humble, only the dependent look to God and depend upon him and ask him for the grace that when they do those little things, it would all be to God's glory. And is this true? Well, Paul tells us it's true in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, the very familiar words, whether then you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. The most mundane things you ever do is eat and drink. And if Paul said, whatever you do, even the most mundane things you are to do to the glory of God, then the question becomes, oh my word, how am I going to do that? Because I'm too prideful and I'm too uh, 
uh, assured of my self-sufficiency that I can do so many things without God's help, then I'm not going to be praying in the Spirit. Prayer is our confession of needing God to help us think, help us speak, to help us do all things in a way that honors him. It is an act of utter dependence upon him. Practically speaking, this means that in my efforts to build myself up in the most holy faith, I must be doing it in dependence upon God, praying in the Holy Spirit. If you are not praying continuously, while you are in the word of God, you will not flesh out what you need so that you can stand against apostasy or all that you need. Jude calls believers to be praying in the Holy Spirit. What this means is that believers are called to pray in dependence upon the Spirit in accordance with the word of God. And the idea here of praying, again, is the praying in the sphere or the realm of the Holy Spirit. Contrary to the charismatics, this is not some specialized prayer. It is the only way that any believer ever prays rightly. If you are a believer, you must pray in the Holy Spirit because there's no other way to rightly pray. Countless numbers of people pray to their ancestors. They pray to other gods. They pray even supposedly to the true God. But here Jude reminds us, if it is not spirit-generated, spirit-led, if it's not in the realm and the sphere of looking to dependence upon the spirit of God to guide you into the truth of God, it is not true prayer. While it is true that even believers may pray amiss at times, When prayer is sought with this dependence upon the Spirit of God, we can be assured that the Spirit of God will never lead a believer to pray contrary to the will of God. How do I know that I'm praying right? Well, if I'm praying in the Spirit of God according to the Word of God, I can't be led astray. To pray in the Holy Spirit, then, is saying that prayer is in accordance with the revealed will of God. The Spirit will never lead you down a path that is contrary to the Word of God. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say to me, I prayed about it, Pastor, and God told me I could do A, B, and C, but A, B, and C are contrary to the Word of God. It was not a prayer in the Spirit. I don't know who you prayed to. You may have just eaten some bad pizza the night before, but you were not praying to and in the Spirit of God. To pray in the Spirit is to pray then with an open Bible. It is to utter the words of Scripture so that our prayers will not be what our, that our will be done, but rather that God's will be done, which is what Jesus said in the garden, right? Keep watching and praying that you do not fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then he said later in his prayer to God, not my will but your will be done because what was Jesus doing? He was watching and he was praying. The verb praying here is in the present tense and it speaks then of ongoing and the continual practice of prayer. Believers are not simply to pray when things are bad. They're not simply to to pray when things are good. They are to be praying as Paul describes in Ephesians 6.18 at all times in the spirit. 
prayer is never to be a natural habit for the believer. It is to be a supernatural one. Prayer is not simply you speaking to or petitioning God. According to Romans 8, 26 through 27, true prayer is a joint effort, if you want to call it that. True prayer is a joint effort whereby you pray and the Holy Spirit actually knows what you should be praying and prays it for you because you don't know how to pray. How humbling is that? Like, what are you talking about? Well, let's look at Romans 8, 26 and 27. These, I was reading this this week and I was like, oh my word. This, this is one of the most humbling statements I could ever read. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Okay, believers, you're weak. Okay, let's just get that out of the way. You're weak, he says. How, well, how are we weak? I mean, all the things we would come up with. I tell you the ways that I'm weak. But Paul says, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you're all weak, and here's how you weak, you're weak. You don't know how to pray as you should. Now, I've heard that. I mean, many of us, we confess that, right? I don't even know how, what, how to pray. I don't know what I should pray. Well, that's good. You're recognizing your weakness. But notice that Paul assumes these people are praying because he says, when you pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for, for words, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to what? The will of God. The word of God. We do not know how to pray. We know we are to pray. We know we're commanded to pray. We know something of prayer, yet in ourselves we are incapable of praying as we ought. Therefore, praying in the, in the Holy Spirit is a recognition that we are dependent upon the Spirit, that we are entering into the realm of the Spirit, seeking His help, seeking His guidance, seeking His own intercession on our behalf. It speaks then, beloved, of a humble and reverential attitude that we are to bring as we pray. Because I could bring the loftiest prayer and it is not praying as I should because I need the Holy Spirit's involvement in it. We could express it this way. Praying in the Holy Spirit means to be immersed in him and shut off from the world's evil. When I'm praying, I should try to, to uh, divest myself from every other concern and be praying in the Spirit in that realm. It is to be focused on the leading of the Spirit rather than the pullings of this world. We must see that the Holy Spirit is the one who prompts and purifies and directs our prayers to be in harmony with the will of God. Beloved, if we are ever to fulfill the command to keep ourselves in the love of God, which we have yet to expound, let me tell you this, it begins and ends with the Holy Spirit. If we are to stand in the days of apostasy, it begins and ends with prayer in the Holy Spirit. And if we are to pray about such things, such prayers must begin and end in the Holy Spirit. Now, by way of application, let me offer you to you what such a prayer might look like. I am not going to offer this to you as some magical incantation that if you want to uh, try to, uh, you, you can take a picture of it and say, I'm going to pray this every day. Uh, I don't think it works quite that way. This is just the attitude, all right? This is the attitude that ought to be found in our prayers. We can pray something like this. Father God, I acknowledge your will and your ways are perfect. 
I know that in your good sovereignty, you have placed me in this particular situation, this present problem, this tumultuous trial, this physical ailment, this financial development, this difficult relationship. Why? In order for me to look to you and depend upon you. You are the one who has allowed this to occur and who has brought me to this moment so that I might pray for the grace to say to you, not my will, but your will be done. Guide me by the precepts of your word, not by my emotions or even by my thoughts. Bring your words to my remembrance. I ask for fellow believers to come alongside and encourage me. Help me seek them out. Enable me to bring honor and glory to you in all that I say and do, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a prayer in the Holy Spirit. This is praying in the Holy Spirit, independence upon the Spirit of God to guide you to pray in accordance with the revealed will of God. Again, if we stand or to stand in days of apostasy against those who would seek to draw us away from the truth, away from dependence upon the word of God, then we must take the steps to make sure that we are first building ourselves up on the most holy faith and that we are praying in the spirit. These are but two weapons in our arsenal by which we adequately prepare and engage in the battle for the truth. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the reminder of the wonder and the availability of prayer. We thank you that we get to communicate with you. We get to interact with you. But we pray, Father God, that increasingly we would find that in our prayers we are actually listening to you, listening to your words as you bring to our remembrance the word of God that we have heard and read and studied that you will speak to us as we pray with an open Bible and you guide us by your spirit as you reveal those truths and precepts. Father God, we do not, we're not capable of fighting this battle on our own. We do not want to fight it on our own. We thank you that you have given us the weapons by which we can make a difference in this world, standing firm against those who would seek to apostatize the faith. Father God, we pray that you would help us to delight in the process, delight in knowing your word, delight in praying as we recognize we need you in every hour, in every trial, in every triumph. May we do so to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.